Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that's mad about media. (laughs) Today we have Laura, Zoe, Walida, and Kellen. Ooh, ooh. And today we have back our favorite journalist joining us, uh, labor, labor journalist and author, Sarah Jaffe. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Yes. Uh, yeah, we were just talking about uh, earlier how we've determined that you are our most frequent guest at three times. <laughs> this is your third time. I win. Yes, the winner. Well, you know, this is appropriate. Because Season of the Bitch used to be my Twitter handle. And so I really feel like this is very, very, um, yeah, I, yeah. I, yes, I have a deep psychic connection with your podcast. I Aww. honestly forgot about that, but just remembered that <laughs> you told us that on the first time you were a guest. And that was like, it must have been like our, like, it was an early episode. Yeah. And I feel like I remember being so starstruck by having you on. And then when you said that, I was just like, <laughs> I literally don't know how to act right now. And now I'm just like, of course, yeah, Sarah, it's fine. Like, we're, we're all fine. I mean, like, you're famous and you don't need any of us anymore. And it's fine. <laughs> um, Sarah, we will always need you. Okay. <laughs> I hope. Yes. Um, so for some context, we originally, when we originally wanted to record this episode, we really wanted to cover the media's influence over our elections, um, you know, kind of the ways that either the headings of things, as well as how um, media pundits talk about elections, as well as just how much time um, different politicians get in the media for free. Um And but of course, you know, the only thing that any of us can talk about really right now is uh, the coronavirus or COVID-19. And so I thought we could talk about the media's influence on this pandemic. And then, you know, if there's time, we'll we'll either get to the elections this time or another time. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I went to therapy a couple days ago, um, which I would really recommend to everyone (laughs) right now. It was great. Seriously. I was talking, yeah, to my therapist about, like, all of my anxiety with this, and she, like, brought up the media and was saying that she feels like the anxiety and panic around the virus has become, like, its own pandemic, which is what she's, like, seeing as being a therapist. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Wild times, guys. Wild times. Yeah, well, I was only, like... So I started self-isolating last Monday, mm. um, so a week ago, long before, like, even my office closed or anything. And mm, Self-isolating before was cool, Walida. Yes, because <laughs> I've been reading about COVID-19 for about a month now, mm-hmm. and I saw the writing on the wall, and people were low-key telling me I was overreacting. I was like, all right, we'll see. Um, but this, this, yeah, I think the media has has caused a lot of problems because they're just not telling people the truth of what's happening. Like just say, I mean, maybe they don't have the information because we have a failed state and an impotent government. Um, (laughs) Also that. Yeah. Yeah. But like it's, it's honest media. The lack of honest media is literally Mm -hmm. costing. It's costing us lives and it's infuriating. I've just been mad. I've been mad for a week. That's where I've been. You should be mad. We should all be mad. I think the thing that like, so when we were originally going to talk about the election, 
Um, I have a lot of things to say about both the U.S. and U.K. media because I've spent a lot of this year in the U.K. And, like, they're also true of the uh, pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. Like, the media is incredibly deferential to existing power structures when you have blithering, you know, buffoons like Donald Trump and Boris Johnson in charge. And you have a media that, like, is temperamentally and well structurally designed to be deferential to power then they just sort of say what Boris Johnson and Donald Trump want them to say which is terrible in this case because like both countries responses to this thing have been atrocious mm-hmm. and so you know what we have is the same problem that that gives us terrible election results is also the same problem that is like giving us like a lack of safety in this moment and a lack of like real response. Sorry, my dog is barking. Precious dogs on season of the bitch. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that, that like the whole problem right now is that like, you know, when our media is supposed to hold the powerful to account and it's basic response is like, I don't know, Boris Johnson says it's science. So it must be science. Right. Um, that's terrible. It turns out. Yeah. It's funny. Isn't the UK's response, like, basically, do just get it so we all have immunity? Like, just they're literally yes. not doing anything. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. It's really bad. And yeah. I mean, it's so bad that, like, journalists are actually starting to be like, well, hey, maybe this is a bad plan. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so, literally, the next question I had for you was what do you think the role of the media has been on COVID 19 here in the United States versus elsewhere? Because I know you've spent a lot of time in the UK. Um, yeah. And, and I think expanding on that and expanding on what you were saying, like, I guess, like, where, where does the role of the state influence the media versus it's almost like a a circle, like, it's a cyclical Mm -hmm. thing, but um, kind of going off of what Walita was saying of like, maybe they don't have the information because we are in a failed state where Donald Trump's like, yeah, I take zero. uh, What did he say? I take zero. No blame. I take no blame. Yeah. Wasn't Fox News? It's cool, though, because he's already got coronavirus. So right. It's fine. Yes. Um, he absolutely does. <laughs> I, I mean, I should not say that as a journalist. We have no proof of that. We do, however, know that Bolsonaro has it and that they yeah. were just at, all at Mar-a-Lago together and that Trump has maybe or maybe not gotten tested. That I don't think we have a clear answer on. No, um, we don't. Yeah. He said he didn't. Then he said he did. Nobody yeah. seems to know the truth. Um, that's the other problem is when you have liars for president, minister, whatever, that's also a problem. But like, so the thing that's been really interesting in, in the UK sort of after the disastrous election results, um, is that there's been a lot of questioning of the BBC and its role because the BBC totally fell down on its job to be a supposedly independent public interest broadcaster, um, which it did a terrible job of in this election with the really you know, predictable result that Boris Johnson is in charge with a large majority just in time to kill off 3% to 5% of his population. Mm. That is like conservative numbers on the death rates. Italy is is really terrifying right now. And um, yeah. Yeah. So unfortunately, I don't speak Italian well enough to know what their media was doing. But I think the question that we're now seeing is that like, you know, the, the, we, we were joking about podcasts being a growth industry right now, but you know, <laughs> a lot of journalists working from home there, yeah. we're self-isolating. The hot take market is going to be really inflated right now. Cause you know, whatever. But in terms of doing actual journalism, like it just got a lot harder, mm-hmm. right? Um, if people are supposed to be staying off the streets, yeah. you, this is all 
going to be a lot more difficult to keep up with things. And at the same time, I have people, you know, texting me and calling me and saying like, hey, do you want to talk to this person who has this, um, these working conditions in wherever, um, because this is what's going on right now, right, is that people are being forced to work in all sorts of dangerous conditions. And hopefully, knock on whatever, we will start to see more holding powerful people to account. We're seeing more of this on like a city level, right? Like Bill de Blasio sort of got shamed into closing schools finally because teachers were organizing mass scouts and even the New York Post was like, what the hell, dude? Yeah. Um, And the New York Post, you know, is like a broken clock every now and then it's right. And the, the thing is that like, sort of like Hurricane Katrina with George W. Bush, right? That Mm -hmm. like, it was so bad that even like Geraldo Rivera on Fox News was like shouting at the TV going, what the hell? Well, didn't Gingrich Gingrich wrote an op-ed because he's in Italy right now. His wife is the uh, ambassador to the Holy See and he even wrote an op-ed stopping just short of criticizing the Republican government here, but basically saying, uh, you're not doing enough. The American government really is not doing enough. Yeah. And, you know, you see this a lot with with conservatives, right? right. That like, oh, my God, suddenly I'm affected. This is terrifying. Yeah. Um, but like the, the reality will sort of catch up to people and then they'll go like, oh, we can't sort of pretend anymore that this is OK because yeah. it's not OK. Um, and we, you know, we operate in the U.S. because this is we're going to try to talk about the media, but we'll end up talking about everything. Right. We we operate with a health system. And this is like the point I kept trying to explain to like my friends in the U.K. who have a function, well, sort of functioning health service, but like at least one that's expected to treat everyone. Yes. We have a healthcare system in the U.S. that does not expect to treat everyone. Right. That is not, does not mm-hmm. have the capacity to treat everyone, that is designed for a certain number of people to not get treatment because they just don't have the money. Right. That's, yeah. that's how it's set up. Um, what that means, and people kept asking me sort of what happens to people who don't have insurance. And I was like, well, they either stay home and they, you know, get sick and they get over it or they get sick and they die or they go to the emergency room. And if yeah. anybody's ever been to an emergency room waiting room, yeah. you know what a great idea that is right, in this yeah. moment. Right. But that's the option people have. And so, like, we already have a system that is, A, not set up to treat everybody and, B, set up to be, like, a vector for spreading the stupid virus. Yeah. Because we don't have enough, like, primary care support for people because that's the number one thing people with insurance don't have yeah. access to. Exactly. Um, yeah, we're just going to have awesome emergency rooms um, and please support all of the nurses and doctors and the hospital cleaning workers and people like that who are like actually some of the most important frontline workers in this moment. Um, I was just reading an article about hospital cleaning workers in England who went on strike because they had not been paid oh my God. in two paychecks. And yeah, in this moment, like what you really need is a hospital to be real clean because, again, trying not to spread a contagious virus even further than it already is to people who are already sick with other things that might, you know, compromise their immune systems. Like, oh, so, you know, in this moment, like I just have to hope that like more journalists will start doing journalism and less like stenography for the Trump administration or for, you know, the local leadership wherever they are. Because there's a lot right now and we're sort of seeing in real time right now what local governments can do, what they have the power to do, which is everything from like releasing people from jails to canceling evictions, right? Mm -hmm. 
Well, and I think it's really interesting, too, the one thing that's been really stark between here and other countries. I have, you know, a friend in Australia and a friend in Germany right now. And they're like, you know, the especially in Germany, they're not having the same shortages in their grocery stores and things that mm-hmm. we're seeing here. And my friend was like, you know, why do you think it's so intense here? And I was like, well, because we have literally zero information and yeah. or often really conflicting information coming through our media sources, mm-hmm. as well as um, a completely inactive government. Um, I am uninsured at the present. Um, and yeah. like there are many people I know that are in a similar situation um and or we have insurance but it's so expensive that you can't really use it like i've got an eight thousand dollar deductible right i don't go to the doctor unless my leg fell off right and so i think there's this there's this there's this specific like curse of neoliberalism we're seeing in the united states in this way of like the lesson the the thing that is so culturally ingrained in us is that the government is not going to care for us we're not going to be able to trust Mm -hmm. the media sources so we need to fend for our fucking selves and we're like going out into these grocery stores and fucking trying to take shit off the shelves because we're like we literally only know that we at the end of the day have to fucking take care of ourselves and that's why the united states is such a like a deeply fucked up meritocratic system it's like so scary that everyone is I mean like of course there's examples of mutual aid which I feel like we should also talk about because it's helpful but it's yeah. like amazing um, right yeah but I think there is this like mentality that's been so deeply ingrained in American culture that is also perpetrated by the media in this way too yeah. well yeah and we can talk about that we can talk about like fake news right like I I kind of hate that term now but like (laughs) the same again the same sort of misinformation that like you know people spread on Facebook about the election they're also spreading on Facebook about like the virus right Mm. so people are like panic buying and they're panic buying like dumb things right like things that will objectively not help you right so like you know everybody stocks up on toilet paper which is just funny because my roommates and I were trying to make a list to go to the store yesterday like what do we need what do we need if like we get sick and I was just like the thing is that, like, I don't know. Like, I the only thing I can think of is toilet paper, and I know we need to not panic by toilet paper because, once again, everybody's doing it. Um, and it's ridiculous, right? But, like, we don't have sort of any good information, and then people spread, like, bad, false information, and then they're like, oh, you need to go buy this thing, and you need to buy that thing, and you need to, you know, clean with this thing or whatever. And, like, most of it is a scam. People are, like, profiteering off of things. You all saw that article about the guy who, like, bought, like, $17,000 worth of hand sanitizer yeah. or something and yeah. then could sell it, which is hilarious. But also, like, <laughs> how many people who are, like, cleaning the store shelves out are like, yeah, man, I'm going to make a profit. It's just like, wow. Um And yeah, and so when you don't, when you've already created a culture where like we don't trust news sources and we don't sort of know how to get good information, we then trust bad information a lot of the time. And what does that do, right? That has, I don't know, I was reading a couple of articles yesterday by, and again, this is like US and UK stuff where like boomers who are like the people who are most susceptible to this thing, right? Or people who are over 65, that's not me being like, you know, okay, boomer, it's just like a fact, but yet, <laughs> but um, also, okay, boomer, by, you know, but there, there is an article by, um, well, I mean, Donald Trump is the epitome of this, right? I was like, I'm not going to get tested. I'm fine. I'm going to shake hands with everybody at every press conference. Well, I'm going to like be a super spreader. It's great. But like there was an article by Molly Jong fast, who is Erica Jong, like the feminist writers 
daughter and she was like, you know, my mother who is 78 was like, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. I'm just going to keep going out as normal. And it's like, no, right. Just because you feel good at age 78 does not mean that you're not actually like more susceptible to this thing. Like, right. you know, I look pretty good for 40, but I'm still 40. And that means I have to start getting mammograms um, yeah. because how I feel and the amount of wrinkles I have does not change the fact that these statistics are real. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, but this, this kind of attitude of just like, yeah, whatever, it's fine. Mm. Um, again, comes from like that same attitude, like you were saying that like, we just have to trust ourselves because we can't actually either think collectively in terms of like, what do we need to do in order to not get other people sick? And also like, you know, it's, it's like the anti-vaxxer mentality, but like, for going outside right right totally yeah i don't care um and everybody keeps reposting that thing from like after the 2016 election right where it's like i don't know how to tell you that you should care about other people right yeah yeah i think that goes really well into something um i wanted to talk about which is like the um like hoaxers of this (laughs) which i heard like i think it was either fox news or like breitbart one of the like super conservative news outlets was like telling people like it's a hoax like go lick every doorknob like lick doorknobs to own the libs you know like oh my god (laughs) fucking whatever (laughs) literally like a massive pro-government march that they were all like it's a hoax they had a massive march in the streets yesterday like this is bonkers they yeah. are like, and it's all older people and all wealthy people, and they all right. are gonna die. <laughs> and like, you're just kind of like, what the hell? Yeah, which is obviously whatever, very fucking. And they're all gonna die, but a decent percentage of them will. Yeah, and yeah. It's yeah, it's it's you know like that that but that whole thing, it's all sort of representative of a society globally right where like trust in institutions is just sorry dog is shaking himself it's okay. where trust in institutions is is just at like an all-time low and that's everything from the government to um the media to whatever and like one of the big issues that i was have been talking about in the election here in the u.s and also in the uk was that like people like poll after poll right shows that like people in every state that's had a democratic primary so far want medicare for all yeah even the states that joe biden has won Mm -hmm. so like we're talking about a thing where like people want the policies and this was true in the uk too like you know the polls said that like people wanted the policies that the labor party was running on but what happens is that they don't trust that like either a anyone can do it or b that like this particular person can do it right so the difference between people like want Medicare for all, but do they believe that you can actually elect somebody who can then change things and do them? That's where the skepticism comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what the problem is. And like one of the things that we're ha- that's happening now because of this friggin' virus is that like, like I was saying, like the state is doing things that it has told us forever that it can't do. Yes. Like yeah. releasing elderly prisoners in Ohio, right? Yeah. People who are going to die in, in prison otherwise, but like need to be released so they don't die early of coronavirus and also spread it. Um, or pausing evictions, right? Like people, we've been told over and over again, like you can't do that. You can't do that. That's just how the system works. You can't do that. Um, when we found out in, you know, the wake of the 2008 crisis that a lot of the foreclosures that banks were doing were illegal. Mm-hmm. Oh, but you couldn't stop foreclosing. You couldn't stop like evicting people from their homes. Like you couldn't, we, people 
organizers were asking for like local sheriff's departments to stop assisting banks in foreclosing on people. And they were like, no, we can't do that. Can't possibly. Couldn't. Definitely can't. Well, it turns out you can. It turns out you can put a moratorium on evictions for a month. You can just do that. Great. Right. It turns out that Gavin friggin' Newsom can requisition hotel rooms for homeless people. Yep. Cool. Why aren't we doing that all the time? Right? It's all like the, the cracks. Like, all the cracks are possible. starting to show. Yeah. Well, the cracks, I mean, the cracks have been showing. But, like, the fact that you can solve them is starting the show. Yeah. Mm. People are going to be like, well, mm-hmm. why, why aren't we just going to keep doing this? Like, I, that's something that I've noticed is like, well, okay, but you're exactly right. Everyone's going to, they're going to try to take all of this stuff away. Yeah. And people are going to be like, why? But, but yeah. you spent a trillion and a half dollars in, the, in an instant right. for a stock market bump for 20 minutes. Why can't we do that for a year of Medicare for all? Like it just, it will not make sense for people. At least I'm hoping. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I really think that we are getting there. And like my friend James Meadway um, wrote a piece for Novara Media this morning about this. And he's just like, look, like this is not going to be just like 2008. Like you could sort of almost prop up the institutions in 2008. And they've <laughs> been crumbling. It's really obvious that they've been crumbling. And that's why you get the popularity of somebody like Bernie Sanders among people who aren't even, you know, leftist podcast listeners, but like, you know, millions of people around this country. Yeah. And so that, that like crumbling sort of edifice was made really visible then but what happened was we sort of couldn't envision anything else Mm -hmm. but now like we've been trying to envision something else for the last 12 years and we've gotten sort of good at it like you know if you look at bernie's platform if you look at the labor party platform if you look at some of the proposals being put out by different organizations like the homes guarantee proposal things like that that are coming out of like grassroots groups we're actually kind of getting good at envisioning something else yeah and so that's the thing that like if we get really creative and also use the power that we have and don't sort of fall to pieces during this moment, like there's actually a lot of potential for saying like, yeah, actually we can do things differently. And this is like the same kind of response we have to this global virus is the response we need to climate change. You know, everything from like canceling most airplane flights to like, um, you know, halting evictions and putting homeless people in houses to universal friggin' healthcare um, and paid sick time and all of these things like, oh, we can have them. Right. And we can have a society where people don't have to spend most of their week at a job that is just like making things that no one needs. We can actually have an economy that's reoriented around the things that we actually need. Like my friend um, Kyle, who's one of the people behind uh, Autonomy, the think tank in the UK, had this tweet this morning that I'm just like sort of obsessed with <laughs> because it's it was just so good. I'm going to read it to you. I'm sorry I clicked something. Um, hang oh, on, sorry. Find it. Where are you? Um, Sorry, I'm recording a man on your podcast. He's one of my favorite men. He's fine. Um, Okay, so he said, no, he said, this crisis is going to reveal what essential work actually consists of. We must make sure that these occupations become the cornerstone of our economy rather than the afterthought they've been reduced to under neoliberalism. Yes. Right? Beautiful. Yeah, I just, I think that that's where we are and that's where we have to be going forward is like, oh, look at all the things we didn't need to do. Look at all the things that we actually got by just fine without. Right. 
and look at all the things we do need, which is to take care of each other, to check in on our neighbors, to, um, we do certainly need a functioning media. Um, yes. That's a thing. And, <laughs> a functioning and honest media. Yeah. So that, and that leads me to a question where like this, this might sound kind of cold and dispassionate, but I want to know like how the left capitalizes on this. Like the fascist right all over the world is capitalizing on this and they're really looking forward to the pensioners dying, the old people dying. They're not they're, their voter base. Uh, well, there was voters, actually a Tory MP who said that yesterday, who was like, wait, our strategy of like yeah. letting everybody get it is going to contradict our problem, which is that these are our voters. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, it will be cheaper at the end of the day for terrible, not as many pensioners. Right? Terrible. But like, like the the left doesn't have the institutions. It doesn't have the mass media, for example, that the capitalist class has. We we can't seem to really overcome capitalist propaganda. Door knocking does not seem to be enough. It's good. It's essential. It does it does not seem to be enough. It's yeah. increasingly looking like Biden is going to be carried over the finish line by scores and scores of political pundits. Um, well, who knows? I mean, the election might not even happen now. So who knows? Yeah, who knows? They might <laughs> spend that. But like. Which is not better, but... No, no. But, like, I'm thinking, okay, well, it took a crisis. Never let a crisis go to waste. Why not? What does the left have to do now to really capitalize this and really hammer home? Like, Grace Blakely had a tweet the other day where she was like, don't be angry when someone like Boris Johnson or a right-wing person um, starts loosening up the purse strings and giving out all of the social welfare. Accept it and demand more, right? Be like, okay, thank you and get more. So, like, what do we do? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, um, you know, I, I hammer home all the time because, like, by nature, I'm not really an electoralist. I don't really love elections. Um, yes. I mean, I like democracy. It would be nice if we had one. Um, but yes. <laughs> so, so you know, I was I was on a panel about left strategy in the UK um, like two weeks ago. Uh, feels like so long ago now. And it was Bristol transformed, so it was the first sort of big get together for the left after the election loss. And you know, I'm I'm gonna say what I always say, which is like, the ballot box is only one of many, many, many vectors of power that we have, and we have to find other ones. And the other thing that I want to say is that like, door knocking is mobilizing, right? Like yeah. door knocking is insufficient organizing. But do you know what actually does great organizing is mutual aid, because that actually builds trust. Like somebody knocking on your door to talk about politics, it is always surprising to me how willing people are to to do that and to, to talk with people. But that's not really organizing. You go away and you probably have not built a relationship with that person. You'll probably never see them again. You have secured or not secured their commitment to vote for your candidate. And that's kind of it. Whereas, like, if you go down the street right now and make friends with five of your neighbors and you go buy them groceries or walk their dog or whatever it is that they need done right now, that's when they trust you, right? This is why, like, people within DSA started doing the brake light clinics, right? It's it's like the Black Panther model. It's it's saying we're going to build what we need in our community, right? The, The Panther programs were survival pending revolution. And, like, that's what good mutual aid practice is and always has been. It's this idea that like the state should be doing this for us. If we're going to have anything remotely like a state, this is what it should do. But it doesn't because it sucks because all it exists for right now is to police us. And yeah, yeah, that's kind of it. Prop up banks. So we need to sort of model, again, the world that we want to live in. But like in doing that, that has to be work that is building trust and building relationships and building power and saying like, hey, actually, this is screwed up. Because like, again, in the absence of trust of media, 
people trust the people that they know. Like, this is why this terrible stuff spreads on Facebook, right? Is because, like, people trust, like, their friends. Big air quotes around friends because it's Facebook friends. But, like, you know, people are like, oh, I read this because, like, Susie shared it. And Susie's my friend. So Susie must know what she's talking about, even if it's from some totally bullshit website, because they think that, you know, their friend is trustworthy. And that's that's the entire, like, machine that Mark Zuckerberg has always been capitalizing on. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that a great way to spread bad information, but it can also be a great way to spread good information if you are, again, building trust with people, building relationships with people, making the world that we want to see exist already. Um, you know, what's been sort of happening with Bernie, who keeps having these fireside chats with local politicians, with local candidates, right? Um, my housemate, friend of the show, Ariel Cohen, is working yes. on the Nikhil Saval campaign right now. And like people like Nikhil are sort of coming out and saying like, these are our demands. And they're acting like they're already in office. Yeah. And I think that's a really useful that's thing awesome. to do if we're going to like per you know, persist in electoral politics right now, which is really complicated because places are postponing elections and who knows how many people are going to vote because like disease. And also, you know, these are, these are ways to organize whoever wins the election because we do have to have a plan B, C, D, and E. Right. And those plans have to sort of respond to crisis in this way that like, the right has kind of been good at. And like, you know, Naomi Klein has talked about like, we need a shock doctrine for the left. We need to be able to respond to crisis in a way that like, not only like mitigates the damage, but also puts forward political demands and uses that moment to put pressure on. And like, this is kind of one where like the obvious solutions are in fact what we need. Right? Like we, we know what we need. We need universal health care. We need all of these things. Um, we need them yesterday. We needed them 40 years ago, but like that is, I think something that we really need to be thinking about now and like how we spread that information is, you know, we, we do things like make podcasts. Um, we can get better at that in our downtime, right. Is, is thinking about like, what info are we sharing? I keep trying to take breaks from Twitter because I'm exhausted because I just finished my book and I'm totally broken, right. but keep coming back. Cause it's like, Oh, this is a place where I can actually like get some information out to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and where we can share like the ways that people are winning things. Right. I think that that's really, really important right now. Definitely. Um, I think if we wanted to, I know that like this will all end up kind of being connected, of course. So it's not it's not really meant to compartmentalize it completely. But I did want to shift slightly and kind of focus a little bit more on elections. Um, yeah, I found a uh, a graph that had how much media coverage CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC gave um, the political candidates starting from. January 1, 2019, so just a little bit over a year. Um, And Joe Biden has triple the amount of coverage than the next person, which was Kamala Harris. Um, Yeah. And then behind Kamala is uh, Bernie Sanders and then Elizabeth Warren. Um, And so I guess, like, I kind of wanted to talk not only about like how does what what is the what are the ramifications of this massive discrepancy between how much different 
politicians are being covered. And even last night, um, we're for our listeners, we're recording this on Monday, and last night there was the debates. And even last night in the debates, Joe Biden said something like, uh, you outspent me so much going into Super Tuesday. Um, and I kind of got bummed that Bernie wasn't like, dude, all of your coverage was free. Like, yes, we outspend you because no one's giving us this coverage. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you about like, what are the those ramifications and also like how the media is talking about the different candidates. So when when the pundits are talking about Biden, it's usually typically in terms of his electability and not really even talking about his policies. Um and yeah. that is how I mean electability, right? It's just the worst. Yeah. <laughs> electability is just like this ridiculous category that like somebody made up somewhere. It was like electability. And like research shows like over and over again that like the more people sort of focus on the horse race and who's electable, the more that actually shapes who votes and how they vote. Right. So the more that you tell people that Joe Biden is inevitably going to be the candidate and it doesn't matter how you vote, surprise, surprise, that lowers voter turnout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And also, like, the more that you focus on the candidates as like a weird personality conflict, then I mean, I am going to go out on the limb and say that it is probably important that Joe Biden's brain appears to, appears to like be made of Swiss cheese these days. Right. I cannot diagnose him, nor should I. But like, I think it's relevant that he doesn't appear to know what's going on half the time. Yeah, I mean, he kept yeah. calling and the crisis but like, Ebola. Talking about these things in terms of, yeah, <laughs> yes. The more that it is treated as a personality contest, the more it, that it's treated as, like, some, you know, series of, like, inevitable whatevers, the less people are interested in voting because they're told that it doesn't matter already in a million different ways. They're being told that it's already been decided before they even get a chance to have a say. And that's ridiculous. I mean, our primary system is ridiculous for so many reasons I can't even begin. But, like, (laughs) one of them being that, like, it could effectively be over before most people get to vote. And (laughs) that would be bad. But, like, the way that this is is structured over and over again is this, like, idea of electability just means, like, hegemonic white masculinity. Mm Mm-hmm. And I find that really, really, like, we should probably talk about that all of the time. Not because I secretly wish Kamala Harris had won. I do not. I am not a fan. However, mm-hmm. I would probably rather her than Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. And and why is it that, like, the center coalesced around, like, objectively its worst candidate? Yeah. Right? And I say that again, not out of any great love for Pete Buttigieg or Kamala Harris or God help me, Cory Booker. But, like objectively the worst candidate yeah at least joe biden know their name joe biden's history is awful his present is worse maybe because no one else would maybe because no one else would uh well they use south carolina as that sort of switch flip right like oh well now we're all going to coalesce around him and push him to the front and frankly i think it's because they know they can't really beat bernie probably with any of the other candidates and they don't care if they lose the general election. They just, they don't care. They'd rather lose it than have a Sanders presidency or have the Sanders movement anywhere near I power. I definitely think that that's true. Um, the way that like the, so, you know, we know, we all know how Trump managed to win the Republican primary, right? Is like all those buffoons wouldn't drop out. So he managed to win, even though he didn't really win majorities in most states. Right. Um, so the Democrats like, 
learned something from that, I guess. I was kind of thinking that they weren't going to, but they seemed to have learned something from that. And it was like, oh my God, we've got to get behind like the first one of these people who can like clearly win a state. And so I guess it was Joe Biden because Pete Buttigieg like preemptively declaring himself the winner of Iowa didn't seem to work for him. Also, he gets like zero black voters. So that was a thing. But um, I know, but like to to look at the way that this this conversation sort of plays out over and over and over again is that like electability is like some weird combination of like centrist politics and white masculinity. And... You know, like if I I was remember being like repeatedly shocked in 2008 that like John Edwards didn't just sort of clean up because I was like, wow, you mean like we can actually beat like the guy who looks presidential um, because it was shocking that we could do that. It turns out that one one person's last name is Clinton and one is Barack Obama. You can actually do that. But you have this this still like ingrained like retreat to this idea of what a president is and and should look like and you know trump is like in so many ways like not presidential and was not assumed to be electable including you know to their great dismay by the clinton campaign but like he still does look like pretty much what we assume a president looks like right i mean we've elected plenty of of kind of strange looking older white men president of this country and so that like (laughs) that obsession it's like joe biden is like this this extended exercise what are you doing dog this extended exercise in like proving that whole image totally bonkers because like there are pictures of joe biden like on a stage supposed to be looking presidential and then he leans forward and like bites his wife's finger and that's a photo that spreads (laughs) all over the internet right um i love that one right like it's just like you look at this and you're like what or like the thing from his live stream the other day where like he just like walked off right it's just like it's this like extreme test of like, well, our idea of presidential is like presidential. Um, and it really means like absolutely nothing except for like white masculinity when like even Bernie is just a little too ethnic to be white. Yeah, mm-hmm. he absolutely is. Except they do call him white when it's uh, convenient. He's just an old white. Guy. Oh, well, right. Yes, of course. Um, yes, that is the the joy of being Jewish in this moment, right? Yeah. Is like your uh, access to whiteness is denied or affirmed based on whether it's convenient for other people. Yeah. Um, it's really great. I'm really enjoying this. I'm not enjoying it at all. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really tired of being a political football, y'all. Thanks. Could we not? Yeah. Could we just stop? Um, could we leave the racism alone? No, we're America. We can't. We, we cannot, actually. You cannot actually, we are just going to be racist in all the ways we're predictably racist. Yeah, a feature, not a bug. Indeed. Yeah, this this brings me to something I wanted to ask about, which is sort of about how individual journalists function. Like, in terms of the way uh, that... Not well. <laughs> yeah, the way that these things are are play out, like the the fact that the media focuses on the media sort of as a general mainstream media, the way that that it focuses on Joe Biden and his electability, and the way that it you know doesn't cover Sanders the way he should be covered, whether that's in terms of minutes, like 
like Laura was talking about, or in terms of the seriousness that with which his policies get discussed, like a good Marxist would be like, yeah, that's to be expected. Our media serves to protect the class interests of the wealthy. Um, and like, obviously this is something that a lot of journalists on the left, like you and others are really clear about and are interested in combating. I would also throw in a plug. I'm sorry, this is a podcast run by men, but, um, citations needed is a podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Men. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I've gotten really into it lately. Um, hashtag quarantine. Repeated apologies from men. I know, I know. Um, but they do some really good deep dives into the way that the media, including entertainment media, um, works, you know, to pre- preserve the status quo. But yeah, Sarah, I wanted to ask you on like an individual level, what do you think the more mainstream types rationales are for covering things the way they do? And I'm not talking about like, you know, whatever Jake Tapper or, you know, the Cuomo brother on CNN who like their own class <laughs> interests are obviously implicated. Yeah, um, but in yeah. terms of like, you know, journalists who aren't independently wealthy, like you're not, or yeah, like, you know, don't have a trust fund to fall back on. What is the rationale for them to cover things the way that they do? Is it pressure from the top? Is it desire to keep their access? Like, have they actually convinced themselves that Bernie is a misogynist with like rabid bro fans at, who are asking the government to do way too much? Like, I mean, what's going on some there? Some of those people might believe that. Yeah. But so yeah. there's two things, right? Because it is always a question of class, like as a good Marxist, right? So one of them is like the structures of the thing are a machine designed to produce one thing and it is the perpetuation of capital accumulation. So that's a thing. But like, so when you are a journalist like me who does not have a trust fund to fall back on, you have a couple of options to make a living. You can get another job and do some writing in your spare time, in which case you don't need to get paid for it or you can get paid however you can. So that means that for a lot of people who get jobs at mainstream papers, they might have politics that they aren't allowed to say, but they need the paycheck because once again, no trust fund to fall back on. So that's one thing is that like, you don't, and this is true of left media outlets too, right? I somewhat famously worked at Alternet, which was somewhat famously a terrible place to work when I worked there. And we had, I had specifically me, constant battles with my boss about what I was allowed to cover. Constant fights, constant fights. I remember, for instance, going to cover Occupy Wall Street and then getting yelled at for it. And then three weeks later, my boss had made an about face because it turned out Occupy was kind of a big deal. You might have heard of it. Um, I'm sorry, Bought me a new laptop and gave me a $4,000 a year raise. Yeah. Fuck yeah. So in the time between I was getting yelled at because I should have been staying home and writing something about Mitt Romney or something. Um, no, I guess it was 2011. It wasn't Mitt Romney yet. Whatever. Um, should have been writing something about Paul Ryan, um, mm-hmm. which I did write a lot about how much I hate Paul Ryan. That is uh-huh. well covered. But, um, <laughs> it's actually kind of sad that Paul Ryan's gone for me because like my hatred was so deep and personal. I need to find uh-huh. new people that I hate that much. Uh-huh. And Pete Buttigieg is out of the race now, although unfortunately we'll probably have him to kick around until I die. But mm-hmm. so that was a thing that like even left outlets are not immune from the fact that like I didn't get to cover whatever I wanted. Mm-hmm. The difference between being a freelancer like I am now and being somebody who has a job is that now if I pitch the article and the editor doesn't take it, I take the article and the pitch to a different editor until I find one that takes it. Mm-hmm. So I get to cover more of what I want. I am in a more precarious income situation, um, although also less so because I've now written a book and another one that's going to come out soon. So that's another source of income. So that's one thing. That's one sort of set of class questions about it, right? Is that it's a job and you don't get to do whatever you want to do at your job. 
because it's a job and your boss gets to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. The other one is that like, so I talked about this. Um, I had like a Twitter thread about it a while back during the UK elections where somebody, um, James Butler, who is a very, very good writer, commentator um, at the London Review of Books of other things and also at Novara Media, had said that it was kind of surprising that like the best holding of Boris Johnson to account had come from local reporters and lower level reporters. And I was like, well, it's not really surprising at all when you look at the structures. And I told the story, which I often tell because it's funny because I ran into Ed Balls at a pizza place once. Um, and Ed Balls is mostly famous for having the name Ed Balls at this point. But <laughs> Ed Balls was, at the time, the shadow chancellor, I believe, still. Um, he had been, in any case, Ed Balls was a highly placed labor politician of the labor right. And he was having dinner at the local pizza place where I was meeting my friends in Finsbury Park. And he was having that dinner with the BBC economics editor. Oh, wow. And that is the other set of class interests that the media serves, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's more than just access. It is literally that this is the people that they are around. These are their, mm-hmm. this is their community. This is their social life. These are their friends. And so it's not just that, like, that the BBC economics editor wants to, like, have good access to Ed Balls. It's that, like, mm-hmm. he goes to parties with Ed Balls the way I go to parties with labor organizers. Mm. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and so that, like, does engender a sense of solidarity and a sense of class interest, which is of an interest with a certain type of politician, which is why mm-hmm. the press hates Jeremy Corbyn and why the press hates um, Bernie Sanders, because they have never been that person. Right. Um, and, yeah, and they see these things, these people, these movements behind these people as threats to their class position. Right. If you are a you know presenter for the BBC, if you're a political editor for the BBC, um, if you are, you know, even somebody who's mostly on our side, like Chris Hayes, right? Um, you get used to a kind of comfortable life, right? Mm-hmm. You get paid really well, and you have a good career, and you are kind of famous, and that all can be fun. Mm-hmm. And that means that, like, not just. Um, and, like, you're still technically a wage laborer the same way that, like, LeBron James is still technically a wage laborer. Mm-hmm. But you are also, like, there's the social distance, to use a term that Chris Hayes himself uses, um, and to use, like, our, our favorite coronavirus term, um, between you and everybody that you're covering becomes, it's different, right? So, like, the somebody who's a pretty highly placed journalist who may not, you know, didn't come from independent wealth, right? Um, I don't mean to pick on Chris. He's just a good example because I know Chris. So like I know, you know, I know that he's not rich. I know that he didn't come from money, right? Mm. Um, but you still sort of end up in this position where like now you you are sort of distanced from the people that you used to hang out with and you used to organize with and you used to write about and you used to talk to. And now you're in this other world where most of the people you talk to are the politicians who are on your show every night. Right. Mm. And that changes your perspective on the world even if again you are somebody like chris who's like really trying for it not to right because you know again marxist we know that like your material conditions shape the way you see and experience the world yeah totally as we're kind of like nearing the end i thought that i could try to transition us in a in a little bit of a light-hearted way um so i was just curious what you think and i really think any of us can answer this, but I was curious at what y'all thought about 
um, how independent media like ourselves uh, can assist or be engaged in times of crisis. Like what do we think we can do with our social media and other platforms to make things easier um, during this time, (laughs) if anything? (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, you are media makers, right? We're making a podcast. You are the media it is um, Jella Biafra used to say, right, don't hate the media, become the media. And that's what we've done. Yeah. And that's great. And that means that like you're reaching a bunch of people right now and, and saying all the things about, um, you know, whatever. And, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, I mean, I think that, that like one of the responsibilities we have is to try to um, take this seriously, to share information that is vetted, that is worth sharing, that is not fake news, that is like, um, like I said, I think it's important to share things where like we're winning things right now. And I mean, mm-hmm. we by like the broad left, like a moratorium on evictions is a win. Yeah. We should point out wherever that is happening um, and point out like I've been trying to share demands that people are making as well as um, places where they're succeeding mm-hmm. on my Twitter feed, on Instagram, on whatever. Um, I'm also just sharing a lot of fun things on Instagram because I think we're all going to get depressed if we're locked in our houses for this long. Oh, so for sure. keeping morale up is good. Where am I going to? Selfies are great. I'm really enjoying, really enjoying everybody's increased selfie volume because all of you are cute oh. and they want to see more of your faces. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we'll right back at you. <laughs> it's true and posting also, selfies is self-care it it, it care. really is and i think that like you know we've kind of been joking on the season of the bitch slack like wh- what's the covid19 content that we should make and we're all in agreement that we should like uh, I don't know, get stoned and watch Buffy and talk about it or like whatever. And just, you know, okay. in addition to like this chaos and wanting to get the real information out there, also yeah. being like, let's not take ourselves too fucking seriously. Yeah. Our audience should also be watching some Golden Girls. I'm just saying. <laughs> That's fine. Oh, well, God, you've yes. been trying to make we this happen for a while. It's, it's Maybe Golden Star Trek. It is the best. <laughs> I'm surprised you're advocating Golden Girls over the next generation, TBH. I already did TNG. Now let's make my God. Well, later, are you watching, watching the new Picard series? Yes. Not yet. I, I have been, which is why I'm also now watching TNG to like catch up on everything. But yes. I am bummed because the reason I agreed to watch Picard is because on the poster he has a pit. And I love pits a lot, as people know. And the dog's in one episode, yeah. and then he goes to space and leaves his dog at home. Aww. Wow. I'm very mad about it. That's extremely upsetting. It is. <laughs> Amazing. Yes. More pits in space. Yes. 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 Um, I want to see I want to see a pit <laughs> in space. Now, if anybody has a picture of this, you should send it to all of us. Yes. Luxury automated <laughs> tagging on Instagram pictures of pitfalls in space. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think we should actually just make a TV series called Pits. I would watch. Oh, did you cut? Did <laughs> you, I think you cut out for a second? But you said you wanted to make a TV show called what? Pits in space. Oh, pits, pits in space. In space. Sorry, it didn't come through on my side. Sorry. <laughs> um, well, it did cut off, but I knew. I knew where it was going. Yes. <laughs> um, well, and then also on our Season of the Bitch Instagram, we've been trying to, um, like, amplify 
stories of mutual aid that are going on around the countries to maybe to maybe connect folks with one another who aren't typically connected. Yeah, I I wanted to shout that out, actually, and I can do it without tooting my own horn. Uh, I can just toot y'all's horn. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sounded a little dirty when I said it. Um, But I, as a person not doing the Instagram, I wanted to say that I felt like the people who are doing this season of the bitch Instagram are doing an amazing job. Um, I can't. This is all Zoe. I can't give, you know, none of us probably can give to like every cause that we see. Um, Our government is failing us that we have to even do this to begin with. But like, um, there's some really great like mutual aid funds that are being um, highlighted there. That there's in a um, there they y'all have put up a like. I don't know what it's called, like a permanent story that's it's, underneath. I think it's not a save story. Save story. Like I gave to um, oh, yeah. one of the like sex worker um, solidarity funds just yesterday. Yeah. So I wouldn't have known about that fund if it weren't for the season of the bitch Insta. So <laughs> yeah, good to, work. To, and I know about a lot of them because I asked people to send them to us. So if there are mutual aids in your area and you're listening, go follow us on Instagram and send it to us. And then we'll. I'm just sharing anything people send us so frick yeah sarah is there anything else you wanted to share before we say our see you later for the moment (sighs) i kind of know i think i think we've covered all the things i think that um stay inside yes follow us all on instagram yes we'll post more dog photos (laughs) and more (laughs) yeah that's what i got I, I'm about to get roller skates More in the mail, so I'm definitely going to have an indoor roller Hell skating yeah. photo shoot. So just stay tuned on that one. <laughs> oh, my God. Amazing. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, as always, for joining us. It's always so helpful and informative to to have your voice with us. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was awesome. It's always such a pleasure having Sarah on our podcast, as you can probably tell, given that this is, as we've said, her third appearance on Season of the Bitch. You simply love to see it. Um, We hope you're enjoying your time in social isolation. Please, if you can, throw us a couple bucks on Patreon so that we can keep making more stuff for you to listen to so that you feel like you're not alone in your apartment. Um, we also would love it if you followed us on Twitter and Instagram. Again, we're at season of the B. Uh, if you leave us a rating, um, and a review on iTunes, that helps other people find us. Um, so please, you know, do that if you get a chance. Uh, yeah, I think that just about covers it. Anybody else have anything they want to say before we sign off? Yo, I'm, I'm about to give you a coronavirus kiss right now. Okay. that's how you kiss in the coronavirus babies through the telephone lines we don't want to see it anywhere else (laughs) soldier boy said it best kiss me through the phone (laughs) okay well love you love you bye season of the bitch